This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest Do Over Please edition. It's Wednesday, August 31st, 2022. On today's show, we're talking about Nathan Fielder's TV show, The Rehearsal. It's a new, wildly successful docu-comedy. It's been greeted with big ratings, a lot of critical buzz, and uh, quite a bit of controversy over its use of child performers. We will discuss all of the above. And then the feature film, Emily the Criminal, stars Aubrey Plaza as a young woman who turns to crime to get herself out from under crushing student debt. And finally, is the desire for silence racially and class coded? We discuss a provocative essay from the Atlantic Monthly. Joining me today is uh, Jamel Bowie. Jamel, of course, Slate alumnus and a columnist for the New York Times. Uh, Jamel, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. And Sam Adams is, of course, a senior editor and frequent uh, contributor to our show. Sam, also always a pleasure and an honor. Welcome back. Thanks, Steve. All right. Well, Nathan Fielder is the still youngish Canadian comedian whose thing is maintaining an excruciating deadpan through ever more preposterous scenarios, which he himself has concocted, but which uh, also involve real people, non-performers, a concept he's pushed to the, I think, absolute limit in the rehearsal, his new show on HBO. Uh, In the show, people have, to the best one can summarize, this rather wild (laughs) confection. People have a life situation they find somehow insufferable or challenging, but they can't change it for fear of the consequences. So Fielder comes in and elaborately, down to the smallest detail, reconstructs the place, time, atmosphere, uh, and uh, bystanders and, and participants of such a possible encounter in a rehearsal. He and the subject play it out often dozens of times, controlling every variable they can, and then doing uh, effectively what the existentialists taught us that we couldn't, which is uh, getting a multitude of chances to get life right. Why don't we listen to a clip? I think the only way to do it justice is to really dig into it. Uh, in the clip you're about to hear, you're going to hear Fielder setting up the premise for the second episode of the show, which runs as an arc through the entire uh, season. Let's listen. Most people say that nothing can prepare you for becoming a parent. But most people don't have the resources to hire dozens of child actors to create a round-the-clock simulation of parenthood. To raise a child from 0 to 18 over the course of two months before deciding if you want to have one yourself. That's the rehearsal I'm giving Angela, a 44-year-old woman who has chronically put off having children because the circumstances have never been quite right. I'd like it to happen in, within the right context. Which is what? In a marriage with, with a man. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. With the love of my life. And is it, do you have that person in your life right now? or? No, I don't. Okay. Sam, you've, you've written out twice about this uh, latest iteration of the Fielder Circus um, with degrees, if I read your pieces correctly, the degrees of utter fascination, uh, a kind of admiration, and a degree of ethical um, queasiness. Where uh, Walk us through that a little bit. What's it like just to watch this remarkable and very weird show? 
Um, I think the best way to explain it is that in the first five minutes of the show where Nathan is, is first explaining the premise um, to this man named Cor, um, who's a New York teacher who is uh, desperately concerned that he's been lying to his the people on his trivia team about having a master's degree, which he has, does not. Um, so Nathan walks him through this whole thing, says we're going to build this elaborate simulation of this bar where you play trivia down to like the minorest detail. That way you'll be able to rehearse that. Oh, and by the way, this conversation that we're having right now, I have already rehearsed in a precise replica of your apartment with an actor playing you. Um, that is in like the first five minutes of the show. So that is just the first of many kind of trapdoors within trapdoors that the show opens and the first of many lies that it tells us and then tells mm. us that it told us. So it is constantly uh, pulling the rug out from under us, making us question things, making us wonder if the people on screen know what's going on, if they could possibly understand what's going on. Once the childhood simulation goes on, there are actors, um, you know, from basically infants, um, through 18 being brought in as sort of on a rotating um, schema to play children. And that brings in all sorts of, of discomfort. So what the show is doing is sort of taking, um, I don't know, a form of experimental documentary and basically reality TV, taking it to its absurd extreme, and then also kind of showing us all the weird things that underpin that. Um and I, I think really like playing up the ethical issues rather than trying to hide them. So it really wants you to be dis like uncomfortable and question what Nathan Fielder is doing. Um, but then going along with those questions, you are effectively doing what he wants you to do. Um, so it just spins you in circles in a really kind of delightful and, and provocative way. Um, as you mentioned, I've written, I think, close to 5,000 words about this show, um, which is a drop in the bucket you know, with the hundreds of thousands that have been written by now, but it is a really fascinating and also also very um, sort of funny show. But um, it is is a hard thing to come down in in one place on, mm -hmm. right? Jamal, I mean, let me unpack in the form of hopefully a question eventually something that Sam said, which is that you know he himself rehearses his own rehearsal for fear of how he's going to horrify or alienate the first subject of episode one, and. In that, you get at one of the premises, both implicit and explicit of the show, which is that he he himself ha exists at a remove from ordinary human emotions and therefore situations. Whatever diagnosis you want to put on it, he just does not seem comfortable with full immersion in the human experience and therefore wishes he himself could control every variable in every social encounter. I mean, there's a phobia about human spontaneity that underlies the whole show. And one way to look at it is, well, that's a deep insight to how all of us feel to a degree. And then it, it turns into something resembling a phobia over very specific life situations that terrify us with the possibility of turning out wrong. Another way to look at it is that this guy's off. He he reminded me of <laughs> Jodie Comer at the very beginning of uh, Killing Eve, who's looking at a, I think, a crying baby and trying to understand tears or something. I can't remember, but it, it's in the most impacted way that show showed us what a psychopath she was. And so I think probably one's, here's the question, finally, is, is one's feeling about the show is going to track very closely one's feeling about his persona within the show. Um, all of which is to say, I'd love to hear what you made of all of this. So uh, <laughs> my first reaction to watching this show uh, was this is the wildest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> like, I think there, there's not a single person on the planet 
who has not wanted to replay something in their lives, either because they regret the actual outcome or they're just sort of like curious about what possibilities may have may have been. And I think it does take someone with a kind of fundamental remove from typical human behavior and emotion to then like take that impulse and spin it in to this sort of like quasi interactive social experiment, which is what the show kind of really is at the end of the day. Um, I find it just incredibly compelling. Um, not necessarily because I can identify with Fielder at all. I don't really have that kind of um, social anxiety or, you know, the, the kind of fear of messing up something in that way. It doesn't, it, that's something I can't relate to, but I nonetheless find it extremely compelling and at times genuinely moving to watch people work through this stuff in this, um, in this like frankly insane situation, right? Like in that first episode when they build the replica of the bar, right? So when, when Fielder explains it, he sort of says, you know, we're, we're going to go through this. And then he says, so we built this replica of the bar and that so, which he does a lot kind of obscures just the, the pure insanity of what will follow the so, right? Like the so leads to something that again is unhinged and yet seems perfectly logical coming from his mouth. Um, uh, and that's sort of, <laughs> that's what I find so compelling to watch. Just like, oh yeah, we're going to practice this conversation. So, you know, I, I have, I have every single response hooked up to, um, a, a, a decision tree to see what possibly could come next. It's like, that's an insane thing. That's, mm-hmm. that's bananas. Uh, that, that is, <laughs> um, and yet it makes total sense. I mean, yeah, one of the really interesting things the show does is there's this pilot episode where it's this guy named Core and he has this issue with his trivia team. And then it seems like there was some sort of a break in the shooting or HBO was finally convinced to spend an insane amount of money on this project. And then, as you mentioned, Steve, it moves into this whole arc about uh, parenthood. Um, involving this woman named Angela, and eventually, without giving away too much, um, Nathan kind of steps into that rehearsal himself as a surrogate father and becomes increasingly attached to that idea. And I think the show really takes on this sort of added weight once you get past this literally trivial issue from the first episode into the issue of parenthood, which is really a situation where you're like, oh my god, if I make the wrong mistake... I could mess up my kid forever, or I can't have kids yet because my life isn't perfectly arranged and I want to get everything right before I have kids, which of course you will never arrive at that point in your life. And eventually you just have to be like, look, I'm going to have a kid and we're going to make lots of mistakes together. Um, And so I I think the show takes on more emotional freight um, as it gets into, you know what, what is in a way, I mean, a very hyperbolized, um, nutty, brain-twisting version of what is somewhere deep down like a, a pretty uh, relatable dilemma. Yeah, I mean, that, that that was precisely... I mean, I think we have to spoil a little bit to get at what's deeply troublesome about the show, which is that in order to comply with child labor and acting laws, 
they have to rotate out these kids. They're sort of doing two things at once. One is they're complying with those regulations by rotating kids out on a four-hour basis. So they have multiple children being infants in the crib, quite literally. And then um, and then they're compacting a childhood into whatever, however many weeks it is, by, by then aging the actors as they go as well on like whatever it is, a weekly basis or something. So they arc, you know, a childhood from zero to whatever it is, 18 or t- teenage years doubly preposterous right and there and the, the, there's this massive difference obvious i mean aside from all of the other ones there's this fundamental underpinning difference between what fielder himself is doing in parenthood which is he doesn't have the anxiety of fucking up these kids as his kid right i mean that's the one of the fundamental things sam you identify about being a parent is like holy shit, like, should I let them cry it out in the crib? Should I go comfort them? Am I turning them into a mewling lifelong dependent if I do that? Or am I turning them into like a, you know, shrieking sociopath if I, if I let them cry it out? I mean, it's like those excruciating dilemmas which don't have a right answer and there are 50 books that tell you each one is the wrong one. He doesn't have that. And exactly the worst thing happens, Jamel, in the course of the show. The worst thing happens. One of the kids who happens to have a single mother in real life begins to bond with him as a real father figure, refuses to address him as Nathan, becomes emotional when he's asked to because he wants to call him daddy. And he does not want to leave the set because this fake home has become more satisfying to him at some level than his real one because he has be- he's too young to conceptually understand that what they're doing is make believe or pretend because it's not the fundamentally the same thing as playing who one of whose elemental pleasures is the ability to create a t- entirely fantastical scenario that everyone knows is fake gets really into and then abandons. And this one he can't emotionally abandon because he does not have the conceptual maturity to understand that he, that this simulation isn't reality, which is what makes it effective, by the way, right? It's not like, oh, wait, how did the kid ever believe this? It's you're attempting to make everyone believe that. And at that point, I have to admit, I'll be the prude at the orgy here, right? Like, I found the show morally nauseating. I couldn't help it. I'm not, I am not going to um, argue with sort of like the the moral discomfort here. I think that the show... Not just in its use of the children, but just in its use of sort of like ordinary adults, um, does raise sort of like troubling ethical, moral, and ethical questions of what we're what we're doing here, especially if it's for entertainment. But I think it's I think part of what makes the show compelling is precisely the extent to which we as viewers are like then implicated in those sort of like troubling ethical questions, right? Sort of like if we are taking this in, if we are enjoying this, if we're just fascinated by it, to what extent do we like share some responsibility for the thing that's happening here? And it really does feel much more like, like I said earlier, kind of like a a social psychology experiment, um, something out of like, you know, uh, millennial Philip Zimbardo, uh, than mm-hmm. it does like a comedy show or whatever. Right. I mean, I think one thing that's so sort of fiendish about the show is that you really cannot watch it and be involved at all without becoming part of it. I mean, to the extent that there are, you know, ethical quandaries in the show or whatever, or, you know, issues about, um, you know, how the various subjects are being dealt with. I mean, the, the information we have about the queasy ethics of those things is the information that the show has given us, which in many cases seems to be arranged specifically to make Nathan Fielder's on-screen character look bad. 
Um, so there's no way to kind of get out of, of playing its game. And I think, you know, you're asking the questions the show wants you to ask. And um, there have been a lot of different answers to these things. Um, you know, with, with the sort of specific issue of the kid at the end, I mean, I think, you know, his mother is one of the characters on screen and she, I would, well, my only answer to that is that she is the person in the situation who knows that six-year-old named Remy the best. And she seems to come to the conclusion that he mm. is going to be okay. And I, I am, mm. I guess my inclination is to go, I don't, I don't know Remy well enough to second guess his own mom. Um, and so if she seems to be okay with it, then I am oh, too. Sam. Um <laughs> What? <laughs> I mean, there's a long history of people selling the well-being. I mean, the McCurdy book, all the way back to Shirley Temple, of selling the best interests of their minor children down to their own vicarious need for stardom. Right. I mean, she I just, just she doesn't she doesn't seem like that kind of mom. That was what I can I guess say. From, so. Again, from what the show tells us. But that's, I guess so. But in that's that the first moment, in that first moment where she tries to or exonerates or tries to exonerate Fielder, he doesn't seem to believe it. I mean, he's right. skeptical. I don't know. I mean, listen, here's the thing. This, I hope, generates a lot of listener engagement for us, because this is one of those ones where it is very it is a painful fence to be plunked on. And Fielder, to his credit, is a kind of genius for plunking you on it. The question is whether the human cost was worth it or not. I come out as no. You guys seem, seem to come out basically as yes. Um, and I, 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 the only thing to do, I think, is leave it there and say, I, I just need to hear a, a plurality of voices on this because I cannot make up my mind. Um, uh, and I will say there is one way to get out of these dilemmas that Fielder presents us. is not to watch it. But anyway, people have. So listeners, uh, shoot us some emails. It's the rehearsal. It's on HBO. All right, let's move on. All right, with no Dane, I'm just going to throw it to myself. Now is the moment in our podcast when we discuss the business. Uh, we only have one item on the docket today. Uh, it's about our Slate Plus, our Slack Plus segment. This week, we'll talk about an article titled, What We Talk About When We Talk About, quote, White People Food. It's an article by Jenny Zhang. It's in Bon Appetit magazine. It's actually, I thought, a terrific piece, so a lot of nuance. Um, it's all about this binary that's forming uh, out there in the meme-averse between well-seasoned food and bland food, uh, with the latter getting labeled as specifically somehow racially white. Anyway, if you're a Slate Plus member, you'll get to hear us explain the crux of that article and offer our own thoughts and insights at the end of the show. Should be very fun. If you're not a Slate Plus member, well, shame on you. You can sign up today, make everything right. You can just go ahead and sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. All right, let's get back to the show. All right, well, the feature film Emily the Criminal stars Aubrey Plaza in the title role. When we meet her, Emily is working in the food catering business as a kind of server slash grunt. Uh, and she's slowly being, and this is one of the salient points of the movie, she's slowly being crushed under the weight of her student debt for a degree she never completed. She is, in short, life screwed. And to help unscrew her life, she takes a one-off job that uh, over the course of the movie turns into something of a lifestyle. She helps commit a credit card fraud for a gang. Over time, she begins to fall for one of its leaders, played with astonishing Elon by Theo Rossi. In this clip, we're going to hear Emily and what, you know, by the logic of the movie represents something like her last chance to really go straight, get a job in advertising. But the interview goes badly wrong when she finds out it's really not a job. It's an unpaid internship. Uh, the first voice you'll hear is the wonderful Gina Gershon playing the executive interviewing her. Uh, let's listen. You do realize this is a very competitive 
position. Yeah, sure. I understand that. What, what I don't understand is how you feel so comfortable asking someone to work without pay. You know, when I was your age, they told me all I could be was a secretary. Okay, but secretaries get paid. <laughs> That's not the point. Well, when you were my age, did you have $60,000 of debt? How about this? When I was your age, I was the only woman in a room full of men. But you had a job. Okay, you know You're, you're getting paid, am I, I wrong? I don't have the time for this. Clearly, you're a bit spoiled. Spoiled? Let me be frank with you. You don't belong here. Because you think everyone is out to get you. None of us are out to get you. Oh, especially Christ. me. Right. I'm well, trying to help you. This was a fantastic list. Thanks very Thank much. Thank you. No more talking. Just leave. Thank you so hey, much Hey, if you want to tell me in. what to do, put me on the fucking payroll. How about that? Jamel, I, uh, let's start with you. I mean, that's kind of a remarkable scene. I mean, there's both a lot of, like, terrific acting. These are highly individuated, very real characters, thanks to Aubrey Plaza and Gina Gershon. At the same time, it's hard not to hear in them so, so the degree of their sort of generational archetypes, in a way. The boomer who's made it, who's pulled up the drawbridge, and uh, I'll just say millennial, I, I don't know the precise generational designation here, but the millennial has been effectively screwed by that lifted drawbridge. Uh, what do you make of this movie? To start, I enjoyed the movie quite a bit. Um, I had a good time watching it. It's nice, slim, like 90 minutes, which I always appreciate. But also, it is a kind of movie that we don't often see that much anymore. Um, something that feels like out of the late 70s or early 80s. Um, you know, it's not the same kind of movie, but like has to me a vibe similar to something like The Driver um, uh, or yeah, along those lines. Like a, li- a nice little crime thriller no high stakes except for the people involved in the story uh and showing you a a world that you are kind of that you the viewer are presumably very unfamiliar with um and not really not really doing a whole lot to um to soften the people involved like Aubrey Plaza's character Emily is you know, we, we sympathize with her, and I think that the movie does a very good job, the script does a very good job of immediately getting you to sympathize with her and sympathize with the extent to which she feels somewhat aggrieved at the world. Um, but she's not, like, a particularly good person either. Um, and she's not someone who is particularly admirable. And I I appreciate a movie that does not ask, does, does not attempt to provide that kind of character. And it simply says, like, this is someone who I'm, we're going to ask you to sympathize with for the duration of the film. And, you know, you can or you cannot. Um, this I, I, That particular scene, and there's some others that I think are, are part of how the movie um, gets you to sympathize with her precisely by putting her in this archetype. She's both a very specific person, but putting her in this archetype of the, I, she's a, she's, I think Aubrey Plaza is about like 38 years old, I think around that age. So she's an older millennial, but sort of part of this generation of Americans who many of them have been shafted, right? By, you know, successive economic crises, by the fact that the people two generations above them have basically pulled up the ladder on so many opportunities. And so in that scene, um, you have another opportunity and it's noteworthy that the scene is right before she decides to rob the what, cousin of um, Youssef, the guy with whom she's been doing this credit card fraud. So like right, right before she um, goes to agrees to this robbery, she has this experience of being, um, you know, basically an offer of exploitation. And I think that, those moments work really well to get you to sort of like 
put yourself in her position and say, like, absolutely, you have to do what you got to do. Um, but what's interesting to me about the movie is that at the end of the day, it's a very cynical film in that way and a very cynical message, which is essentially like that the people who came before us essentially created a, gin- a gigantic grift and scam. And to succeed, we too have to create a yeah. grift and scam. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a real um, hardness to Aubrey Plaza in this movie that I like a lot. I mean, the, the director, Edgar Wright, um, saw a picture from this movie where she's wearing sort of a sleeveless tank top, um, showing a little bit of bicep on the cover of a magazine, um, and thought for a moment that she had been cast as the new Lara Croft. Um, so, <laughs> you know, so there is something fascinating to me, among everything else, to see, you know, April Ludgate from Parks and Rec and the sort of uh, social media crazed wannabe influencer that Aubrey Plaza played in Ingrid Goes West um, now kind of getting into credit card fraud scams just to sort of stay financially afloat. I think there's there's a real canniness to some of the roles she's been choosing that sort of trace this generational arc. Um, you know, this is definitely like a movie that I think, you know, will appeal to anybody, as Jamel said, who loves those kind of uh, sort of gritty 70s social thrillers. Um, but it isn't a movie that makes excuses for her in a way. I mean, yes, I mean, we know she's a millennial with, with student debt. Um, we also find out that she is a, a victim of domestic violence who has a felony conviction on her record, which is why she couldn't finish school and why it's hard for her to get a job. But it doesn't cut her like too much slack. Like we kind of understand why she has gone down the road that that she has gone down without, um, you know, feeling like she necessarily had no other choice or certainly that it's okay. I mean, she gets into some bad stuff here um, and then ends up not only perpetrating but perpetuating it by the end of the movie. So, um, you know, it's not a sort of woe is me thing, but I think it is – you do understand how she gets there. And I think, uh, you know, it's just a, a beautiful performance, among other things. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and, and you know, the movie, I think, quite deftly makes the point um, that you don't have to be the perfect victim to be a victim. And she's clearly imperfect, but also a victim of, a, of this uh, system that screws over young people. Um, and she had no say in creating. And there were many things I love about this movie. I really admired it. But the way in which... Um, that legitimate system of bilking and uh, loading up into peonage young people uh, and the criminal world are supposedly entirely separate antithetical worlds, the legit world, world and the illegit world. But in fact, as desperation sensor from the one into the other, you realize it's in fact, they're, they're not really very different at all. One is maybe a little less hypocritical in what it's doing and, and why. Um, and it's also what I, fa- I found a kind of wonderful almost joke of the movie was how fluently she speaks like a mobster because it's exactly the ethic of the legit world stripped of its bullshit. And she just can't wait to not have to bullshit. And she's tough. She's just adamantine hard. You're right, Sam. Like there's she's really good in this movie, Aubrey Plaza, because that little Jersey accent, she doesn't overplay it. She's from someplace tough. And if society were just different enough, all of her supposedly negative or antisocial qualities, which for the record, I don't perceive that way, could be turned into something enormously productive, right? She's resilient, tough, self-starting. A lot of entrepreneurial cliches, as we know, apply to people in the underworld, um, which leads us to Yusuf, who, along with Plaza, is the great strength of the movie. I mean, it it is not an overwritten part on the page. He makes that character his own. Theo Rossi, this Lebanese immigrant criminal who's really seductive 
and were seduced by him. He's very, very good, whether because he's uh, cunning or sincere. Uh, he rides that line a little bit, but um, but very good at allowing the person to leave. Like that's part of how they wrote people in. It's like very much we want people who want to do this. Like this is only going to work if you really want to do it. Like we're there's like a transparency. He's going to disclose everything, and you're like. As he's doing it, you totally believe that he's that guy at the same time. You're like, I think you're kind of the romantic lead of this movie. I mean, I'm having those funny feelings inside me. I hope Aubrey Plaza is too. Like, this movie is going to get freaking sexy because of him and and her, obviously, who we've already fallen in love with. And that that's really powerfully magnetic. And so it sets up, there are all these set pieces that are that are too realistic to really be genre set pieces in that... You know, they involve a scam almost going wrong, and your 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 palms are sweating on her behalf. But the meat of the movie is really their relationship as a relationship that may not be transactional. Like you begin to really believe it's for, on his part totally non-transactional. And and to me, Jamel, that was where the movie got truly bewitching. Yes, no, I I, I completely agree. Um, it's clear that even he, Yusef, isn't entirely sure what what his relationship to her is like, is this simply a business transaction or a business relationship? Is there something more? It's the combination of the two. And the, what I like about the movie quite a bit and what, this is one of the things that does make it feel very reminiscent of something from the seventies, just like the uh, willingness to let the ambiguity kind of just like be there um, is the movie doesn't really try to resolve it at all. Um, there's no attempt to kind of really say this is what their relationship is. They are feeling it out and we are feeling it out as an, as an audience. Um, I have to say as well, it's just a little thing, but I, I laughed at it. Um, there is a, a scene where she is, um, she has tasered someone and tied, zip tied them and thrown them into a trunk. And she's gonna, cause they're trying to break into a house and, she is about to close the trunk on this guy and he's like asking her not to. And she, she looks at him in her accent, her Jersey accent says, um, you'll be okay. This is your fault. You shouldn't have been here, which was very funny to me. And it also just like struck me as something you would hear from like Marlo. Um, and that's sort of the vibe I got from this whole movie. Kind of like we're watching kind of a modern day kind of Marlo story. Hmm. I would say, I mean, with her and Theo Rossi, and I guess I think we should probably acknowledge at some point that, like, it does, I think this movie does overplay its genre hand a little bit in the third act. It gets a little mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. over the top. But I think one of the, the smartest things it does, uh, that Aubrey Plaza-Theo Rossi relationship is so great, and one of the smarter things it does is it doesn't ask us, she is, I mean, it tells us that she is, you know, she went to art school had to drop out, isn't able to paint or or sketch, which is her thing. And it shows us her doing that a little bit, but it doesn't ask us to feel sort of overly sympathetic for her because she's an artist and we're watching an art movie yeah. that debuted at Sundance. And he's really the one, you know, Theo, um, Theo Rossi's character has this dream of just like buying a building and becoming a landlord. And he's really the one who has sort of the big moony eyes and these big dreams. And it asks mm-hmm. us to sort of to feel more sympathetic for him. While at the same time, there's the scene where Aubrey Plaza is, is like teaching teaching him a little bit of Spanish. Um, and the phrase she's teaching him is, is the rent is due Thursday. Um, so it's it's acknowledging that he is just going to be, he his big dream is to go into a forum where he can exploit people in a legal way instead of in an illegal way, because there is no way out of the system. It's just their legal yeah. ways and less legal ways to get into it. 
Yeah, you guys nailed it. I mean, I, I've been reading the Wayne Barrett collection uh, without compromise, which is his sort of history, or very early history. It's it's pieces collected going back 50 years in which he covered either Giuliani or Trump or both as corrupt figures as early as the early 70s in New York City. And in it, I think it's Barrett or it's somebody writing in part of the introduction, it just starts talking about America's cunning, which is to turn you into the thing you thought you hated. And uh, I thought this movie was just a perfect illustration of the of the larger phenomenon. Very highly recommended for performances and and uh, and other. I agree with Sam. It goes a little OTT and genre wise towards the end, but it's 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 a really strong offering. Okay, check it out. It's called uh, Emily the Criminal. As of now, only in theaters. Really worth the trip. Uh, uh, lay out the bucks. Lay out the time. Go see the movie. If not, check it out when it streams. But uh, get in touch with us when you do. Okay, moving on. All right. Well, the writer Zochiel Gonzalez has written an essay for The Atlantic called Why Do Rich People Love Quiet? It recounts her own journey from a Puerto Rican neighborhood of New York City in which quiet was not necessarily, according to her, so highly prized onto an Ivy League campus where it was. As she puts it, I soon realized that silence was more than the absence of noise. It was an aesthetic to be revered. Yet it was an aesthetic at odds with who I was with who a lot of us were. Uh, Jamel, I was very, very, very intrigued by this essay. I wasn't sure I, I saw its truths while not being quite sure I agreed with it in a larger sense. But uh, I'm very curious to, to hear your take on it. Did you find this a, a credible alignment of silence with uh, class and racial prerogatives? So I, I'm with you in that I read this and I, fa- I thought it made it like a plausible argument. Um, but I'm not entirely convinced. I, so I, here, here's my sort of schema for trying to understand a real, a real phenomena that Gonzalez identifies. Like it, it is a, a actual phenomena that, that she has identified. And my way of thinking about it is to tie it to sort of like the, uh, suburban pastoralism that is like very much a part of like American bourgeois thinking and has been for a very long time. Um, and so it's sort of like you have people come to cities who kind of expect to be able to recreate some version of that pastoralism. Um, and so they, you know, they try to, whether they understand themselves in these terms or not, there's like this attempt to kind of like, you know, um, suppress noise, you know, prevent new construction, kind of preserve green space, but not necessarily in an inclusive way, et cetera, et cetera. So that you see this kind of like, you've, you've seen this in the last 20 years as American cities have really begin to attract um, more middle and upper class people, middle and upper class white people in particular, and sort of that bourgeois sensibility has begun to come back into the to the uh, the life of cities. And so this is obviously tied up in race and class, um, just because of the nature who's been able to access that kind of uh, space and quiet and so on and so forth. But I'm not entirely sure it can be reduced to to something that is about race and class. I think it's tied into something to think that are like larger, not larger, but but other forces in the in the American psyche. And I say that just as someone who is. Um, from a you know a predominantly rural black family and so it's sort of like yeah people can people are can be loud and boisterous but they also like their space in isolation um uh and so that's i'm not sure i i think that this is something that is like at least partially attributable 
to a very American um, desire for uh, space and like mastery of one's surroundings mm. that like conflicts with like the nature of urban living. Mm. Uh, Sam, I like that. There are a lot of would-be binaries at play here at once, some of which cross-cut against the others and some of which appear on examination to collapse into one another. Where do you unscramble these uh, scrambled eggs? Yeah, I think it is is it important to break apart a little bit um, some of the things that this essay tries to kind of smash together. I think it's very interesting and provocative, and I'm glad I read it and we're talking about it. Um, but, you know, there's sort of two or three kind of main scenes in these or, or settings, um, one of which is kind of the urban setting that we're talking about. There's a, a moment she describes when she's over at a friend's house. Um, presumably, you know, sometime late at night. Um, and they're sort of, uh, I think she says, like arguing over who their favorite rapper is. Um, and then some neighbor comes and knocks on the door. Um, and she, I think she just identifies her as a woman in, in her 20s. But, I, you know, at this point in the essay that she's white. Um, and says something like, you know, didn't your mothers ever teach you the difference between inside and outside voices? Um, that that person, you know, should probably be dropped from a great height. Um, <laughs> but then, but then the opening scene where she's talking about it is is this Ivy League college um, where people are sort of asking for quiet. And I think that that's you know, like a, a college is a lot of things, but among other things, it's like a workplace. Um, and, and as someone who loves the noise of the city, feels very passionately about it, but also is both constitutionally, culturally, but also sort of neurochemically um, pretty susceptible to distraction. Like, I like quiet. I don't like write well or think well um, with particularly voices around. So I'm, I'm somewhat sympathetic to that while also feeling that, um, you know, if you are going to be part of a community, whether it is a college campus or especially a neighborhood where at least on in college, like everyone is there for the same reason. Um, if you move into a neighborhood, like there are a million different reasons. Um, and if you're going to be part of that neighborhood, if you, especially if you move into a city, like, yes, okay, so your neighbors need to be considerate of you. But um, the sort of cardinal sin in this article is people is sort of filing noise complaints with the police, um, you know, which particularly when you're filing them, uh, you know, when the, the people making the noise are people of color, you are needlessly exposing them to potentially extremely serious consequences. Um, and if you want to like live in a neighborhood and you want your neighbors to treat you like neighbors, then you need to return the favor and go at, uh, speak to them directly and not call the cops um, just because they're playing their music too loud or out on the stoop after 10 or whatever it is that, that's bugging you. So, um, you know, I, I think there's a line in the first part where she's talking about the Ivy League experience that she says, um, basically, I had to realize that, you know, like their comfort was not more important than my joy or something like that. And I think that comfort joy dichotomy is a little maybe more loaded um, <laughs> than mm -hmm. um, this subject necessarily is. But I, I think there is at base, there's a lot of a lot of different issues at play in here. Um, but one, one of it is just like sort of basic, like back and forth sort of social consideration. And, um, I, you know, noise is a flashpoint for a lot of people. Um, but I, I think that the point is, right. you know, sort of well taken that if you want to like, <laughs> you know, live in a, if you want to live in a city, you got to live in a city. Right. And, and by the way, as someone who lives in an overwhelmingly white quasi suburban pastoral, it's quasi rural, actually, it's still predominantly farmland, uh, that that's going away in favor of, of suburban development. I can tell you that the, the, this is a powerfully angering 
issue in the countryside, right, among white neighbors who, and it, uh, you could argue here it's a class issue, right? There are, you know, people who want to ride on um, uh, dirt bikes in their backyard for hours at a time, whose families have been in this community for seven generations, and a city person moves in next door with a fantasy of just cows and chickens and utter silence, and things get really ugly really quickly. Um I, I mean, let me try to say where I, I'm in complete agreement with the article and where I start to maybe uh, shift away from it is that I just take it as like a dialectically self-evident truth that everything in America is heavily determined. All supposedly found reality actually participates in, in um, you know, is racialized and, and, and comes through a class and, and race prism. And secondly, all the Ivy League schools were founded as exclusively white institutions, and you know it was morally urgent to reform them away from their origins, which um, you know has at least begun to happen. Where where I do think that there's an aspect of the argument that's somewhat ahistorical, which is that if you go back to the sort of what we might call the pre-meritocratic era of those elite institutions, so before. Roughly the 40s, when the federal government took over from conservative hidebound alumni as the principal funders of the Ivy League schools through research grants, and they suddenly had this social purpose, which was to produce scientists and other cold warriors, effectively. They they became hyper-meritocratic institutions. I can absolutely promise you from all of the social science and novels that I've read that take place prior to 1940, roughly— the dominant social feature of the campus were loud, white, rich kids. And in fact, there was a deep social conflict between the white scholarship kids who actually needed to study in order to emerge with any life, you know, um, white-collar life prospects whatsoever, who were absolutely second-class social citizens on those campuses, and they wanted quiet. So I don't know that there's a transcendent way to assign quiet to any of these otherwise incredibly morally urgent categories. Um, and that that's effectively where I come out on it. I'm curious if that resonates. Yeah, no, I think I, I'm inclined to agree with that simply because I'm sort of just allergic to kind of like essentializing the noise silence thing. I, I'm as much as it is tied up in race and class, like I said, I think it is also tied up in aspects of like American identity, which um, cut across racial and class lines, and I, you, 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 giving the example of someone coming to your community, um, upset about dirt bikes or whatever, I think is a great example of this, right? That just like there is this, and there has long been, you know, going back to the beginning of this country's history, this kind of fantasy of sort of like you know mastery over one's homestead, and in the in the urban age, which at this point like constitutes almost half of American or United States history, um, that dream of uh, mastery of the homestead has been like imported into the more dense places in which people live. And so you, you know, this is sort of like what is the 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 this is part of the um, motivation for. HOAs, right? Like homeowners associations, which are all about sort of like establishing this like mastery over the environment through these, you know, onerous regulations and rules and so on and so forth. Um, uh, and uh, in order for, for like racialized and class reasons, right, to keep out low income people, to keep out non white people, but also to sort of like play um, this, you know, this, uh, 
this fantasy of you know I'm 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 master of the space around me, and so this gets imported into cities um, as well from people who are coming from these suburban environments and like landing in cities and expecting to be able to like impose that kind of you might call it discipline onto city life. And because of just like the nature of who lives in cities and migration and such, this takes on a very sort of like racialized tinge. But I'm not I'm just like not entirely sure that it is you know racialized at its you know at its origins right I, yeah i mean i guess i would just agree with that i mean it is it is certainly you know a vector in here there're just a lot of different vectors at play there's a, an interview with the um author where she went on npr and talked about this and they the, the interviewer sort of put it to the author of the essay like well didn't you you know write something about um you know needing a quiet place to write your novel and she's like well yeah sure so i you know when i needed that i you know, got a place out of the city to write it. And it's like, well, okay, so now we're just talking about, like, if you want a quiet place, then rent another place outside of the city to go to. Like, now, <laughs> that's not an option that's available to a lot of people in the city as well. So I, I just think there are a lot of vectors coming in here. Um, but as I said before, I mean, I guess, you know, what it comes back to, to me, is just to, you know, respect the community that you have either literally or metaphorically bought into, um, certainly if you expect to get that back. Hmm. All right. Well, the essay is in the August 1st uh, issue of The Atlantic. It's called Why Do Rich People Love Quiet? The Sound of Gentrification is Silence. All right. uh, Send us your thoughts on this. Let's, uh, Let's move on. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse. Sam, why don't we start with you? What do you got? Uh, well, when I was a kid, my parents used to take me into New York every year for my birthday to see a Broadway show. Uh, and in 1986, that show was Starlight Express, uh, the notorious Andrew Lloyd Webber disaster about anthropomorphic trains uh, featuring Jane Krakowski on roller skates. Uh, the choice I should have made that year, uh, had 13-year-old me even known who Stephen Sondheim was, was the original production of Into the Woods, uh, which is sort of a tongue-in-cheek mashup of fairy tale stories that also ends up being a pretty devastating commentary on parenthood and loss. Uh, Fortunately for me, as well as for everyone else, there's a new Broadway production of Into the Woods right now at the St. James Theater in New York um, that is, according to people who've seen both, every bit as good as the original. Uh, This is centered around Sarah Bareilles' turn as the baker's wife, um, and it began life in March, I think, as a sort of stripped-down revival at City Center, which is not really much more than a bare stage with an orchestra in the middle. And they've really retained that staging for the Broadway production. Um, There's basically like a set of steps and a few things that come down out of the ceiling, but it's close to almost like seeing this in concert as you can get. And I think it's, it's really helps to sort of simplify and sharpen what is one of Sondheim's most complex and layered shows. Um, If you're hearing this podcast the day it drops, uh, you have, I believe four performances left to catch the original cast before they rotate out after Labor Day. So if you have, I don't know, several million dollars sitting around to sculpt tickets. You may want to go that route. Um, But the production will be up through mid-October. They have great replacement cast coming in, and there's also a cast recording coming in um, sometime this fall, which I'm really looking forward to. I've been listening to the show for years, but it's never hit me as hard as this version has. And the best part is I got to take my own 13-year-old, and she loved it. Uh, Magnificent. Uh, Jamel, what do you have? So I think I may have mentioned before that I have this uh, podcast, Unclear and Present Danger, where we watch the political, military, you know, 
legal thrillers of the 1990s and talk about the political and social context behind them. Um, and for the podcast, I recently watched the 1992 Bill Duke uh, directed movie Deep Cover starring Lawrence Fishburne and um, Jeff Goldblum. And it's been a couple years since I've seen it and I saw sort of like a bad uh, you know, transfer that was streaming on iTunes. So sort of like, you know, not, not the best version. I liked it at the time. Uh, and rewatching it, I picked up the newest, the new Criterion release, which is a full remaster um, of the of the film, a full restoration. And when I tell you that I came away not just liking this movie, which I've seen before, but thinking it's a genuine masterpiece. I mean, it was it was like watching a whole new movie. Um, it is, I think, a great example of of you know modern relatively modern neo-noir sort of like the 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 film is drenched in shadows but also bright neons and bright colors and sort of gorgeous to look at it is like a fascinating political artifact of the 1990s um in terms of its relationship to uh, black politics of the era to drug war politics all these things and also just a great showcase for these two leads, Lawrence Fishburne as uh, a black police officer who goes undercover in the drug trade and Jeff Goldblum as a lawyer who uh, basically works for drug dealers. It's probably one of Goldblum's best performances, I think. Um, and it is certainly one of Fish Fishburne's. And Bill Duke, who is a director that I feel like just does not get enough credit for being um, interesting and reliable. Uh, Bill Duke really directs the hell out of this thing. So uh, we'll highly recommend uh, checking out, watching Deep Cover. I think they have a version streaming on the Criterion channel, um, which is, I think, from their restoration. But if you have a Blu-ray player, if you buy physical media, then I think the Blu-ray, the disc itself, is, is it's a remarkable restoration that's really worth watching. It, it looks fantastic, and um, it's a great movie. I think one of the best of that decade. Oh, that's cool. I am now very eager to see that movie. So I'm just going to very briefly revisit a, a previous endorsement to say I've now finished the Shirley Hazard novel, uh, Transit of Venus. And I guess my hesitation when I endorsed it, having read 40 or 50 pages of it, was how almost overly literary it was almost an archaic style for a book written in the 1970s forget it that's one of the devices of the novel it's about how the victorian rigidity gives way to modern life and what that meant for its two uh, uh women protagonists great novel but my real endorsement today a new endorsement is there's a swedish hip-hop group that my older daughter has gotten into called i think it's pronounced blady but it's spelled blade with another e on the end and it's their new album brand i think brand new album crest is just so it's so bewitching it's really cool it's not like anything i think i've heard before familiar in many ways it's got synth it's very melodic it's poppy it's kind of hip-hop or, or very swedish you know version of hip-hop whatever that would sound like but uh if you want to just check out a song i like the song desire is a trap great title girls just want to have fun which is not a cover it's just a repurposed title it's a really cool record i, I don't know what to say I, I popped it on the other day uh independent of my daughter who played it for me in the car just thought it was just a 
very seductive set of tracks. So check it out. The album Crest by Blady, B-L-A-D-E-E. Jamel, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It is always just a huge pleasure to have uh, have you on and talk stuff with you. Oh, always a pleasure to be on the show. Yeah, and Sam, uh, you too as well. Yeah, my pleasure as well. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the wonderful Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews for Jamel Bowie and Sam Adams. I'm Steve Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, hope we see you soon. Hello and welcome to the Slot Plus segment of the broadcast. Uh, Today we're going to talk about an article in uh, Bon Appetit magazine. Uh, It's a nice corollary echo to our final segment of the regular show today. It's called What We Talk About When We Talk About, quote, White People Food. And the author, Jenny Zhang, picks up on a internet meme that has some basis in history, the idea that American whites, maybe in particular, gravitate towards underspiced or flavorless food. It's become something of a joke on the internet. She explores both the history of it and then troubles that history. Uh, Jamel, you recommended this piece. I I found it very, very interesting. It ties up with my own personal history as uh, someone raised a wasp. Uh, But uh, first, uh, what what attracted you to this argument and what did you make of it? You know, part of what attracted me to this argument is that I'll, the uh, Zhang spends time talking about this discourse on TikTok, and as someone who has become somehow like a regular TikTok user, I do see it a lot um, and see this conversation around uh, spices and food. And one thing she kind of she talks about, and one thing that's always troubled me about this conversation, these jokes, because the jokes are funny, right? Like it is funny um, (laughs) that there are a lot of Americans who have like these very bland palates. And so I'm not going to pretend like this isn't a thing and that it isn't funny because it's it's often very funny. But as she points out, this can also kind of reduce um, uh, and flatten kind of like what sort of non-white or ethnic or whatever you want to call it, like food from black Americans, from immigrant groups, um, uh, uh, it can flatten what that food is and make it seem as if something which isn't covered in dried spices is like, makes it seem as if it's like unflavorful. Um, and that I, I agree with that because in watching these videos and sort of following these, these jokes, I'm always struck by how, you know, there's a difference between food that is bland and food that is like kind of allowed to be itself, um, which gets sort of, which is not, which is a distinction that you don't, it's, it's, it requires some nuance to think about. And also that nuance is nothing come across um, in a forum like TikTok. And so that's kind of the reason why I thought this piece was so interesting because it was, sort of, it was both kind of echoing a kind of thing that I have felt exp- uh, absorbing this stuff and, and taking in this stuff, but also, I think it's welcome pushback to um, both to the idea that like, you know, white palettes are necessarily that a, that there's such thing as a uniform white palette and that this isn't necessarily something that's quite, that requires bland food, but also push back against the idea that somehow um, non-white food is similarly flat. And it's like, 
in its approach to food and seasoning and spices and so on and so on and so forth. Mm. Sam, what about you? How did this uh, argument hit you? I think I think this is a really really interesting article. Um, I love Jenny, who used to work at Slate. I miss seeing her in Slack. Um, as the title indicates, this is an article you know that's not so much about food as about discourse. There's a ton of of links and references in here to particularly TikTok and Twitter, and it is about how sort of valid. Uh, cultural observations get flattened into memes, um, and then the sort of harm may be a hyperbolic word, but you know the the ripples, the, the effects that that have. Um, there's a, a story that my, my wife and I tell a lot, where she uh, went out with some Indian friends of ours to order Indian food at a restaurant in uh, the Philadelphia suburbs. Um, they were sort of ordering at the counter, and they asked, you know, the typical like, "How spicy do you want it?" And our, our friend said, you know, eight or nine or whatever it was. And they, the person just sort of took a look at my wife, who is white, and sort of shook their head. Um, and and then and then our, our friends had to be like, no, no, she's she's ordering separately. It's okay. Um, and as people who love Indian food and eat it a lot, uh, you know, a little bit of like you know hurt feelings or something around that. But I also thought about it for a second, and I, I mean, I assume this is learned behavior. I assume this happens, you know, because. Um, you know, white people have ordered food at this restaurant. They're like, oh, just just give it to me the way you eat it. You know, that's how I want it. And then, you know, five minutes later, they're sending it back because they can't eat it. Um, so, you know, obviously there's, there's some truth to this. But um, as Jenny points out in the article, you know, then you end up um, with stuff like people kind of basically calling like sushi white people food because it's not spicy enough and because it's you know, more about sort of the richness and purity of the flavors than it is about how much can get loaded onto them. And you wind up with these um, TikTok recipes where people are just throwing like way too much stuff into the pot at every single opportunity, just so it looks like they're adding enough flavor because um, this is all taking place in a medium where you can't taste anything. Um, so, I, you know, I really liked reading this and, and thinking about it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm someone who like at restaurants will you know, if there's any item on a menu that brags about how spicy it is, I will never order it because I assume that this is just some sort of endurance test, like a, you know, pepper eating contest or something. And there's actually not going to be that much flavor in there. Um, but, uh, you know, so that, that's sort of the other, the other risk of this, um, Mm. dichotomy. But yeah, I think it's just the, the point really is to just, um, you know, celebrate food on, and cultures along a number of different axes and not just like how high you can get something on the heat index. Yeah. I mean, I have to say I really admired this essay. It seemed to me kind of an ideal example of the type where you take a, you know, memified phenomenon from the internet, you explore the history of it, you show how it has a grain of truth to it or enough of a grain of truth to it that the stereotype isn't doesn't come from nowhere but it comes from history not nature it's totally culturally contingent and but but on a sort of secondary level it really struck home because i was raised by people who you could think of as the um my my beloved parents who you could think of as the you know sort of overlap of three venn circles which is they they themselves had been raised by anglophilic snobs who did actually believe that spices were overly stimulant to the you know lecherous impulses of the body and and did have a whole victorian american prudishness around spicy foods that extended to all things you know um and secondly my parents were raised by those people those four people respectively during the depths of the depression and so there was a way 
as uh, as uh, as the author of this piece makes clear, there is a way in which Americans of all kinds and stripes had to get used to eating bland, prepackaged, boiled, simply prepared um, uh, foods uh, for lack of uh, income to do otherwise or supply chains and all of the stuff that ground to a halt during the Depression. Uh, and then a third phenomenon, actually, I think there are four Venn circles here, then grafting on that was the sudden explosive rise of national supply chains and mass-produced um, standardized foods, cheap foods in the 40s and 50s as subsidized by agri- you know, the federal government and, fl- and dollars flowing through agribusiness, which did blandify and homogenize food in order to reach the maximum number of people and offend the smallest number of people, the, the palates of the smallest number of people, on top of which my parents were like classic 1950s wasps, right? I mean, they, they just really were the cliche and the story I like to tell is that in grade school, I made friends with a kid whose uh, parents were, um, uh, I think, sec- actually, se- they were second-generation Italian-Americans, and my friend was third-generation. And I went and had this unbelievably like mind-blowing, mind-opening, delicious meal at their house, just filled with degrees of spicing and, and flavor complexities that I'd never experienced before. And on my walk home on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, all of a sudden, I began to think I was having Literally, I began to think I was having a heart attack. I was in so much physical pain. It was like someone had hit me with a .30-06, you know, from one of the upper windows or something. I felt like I was taking sniper fire. It was like, it's just, I've never felt thoracic pain like this before in my life. I had to, like, stop and bend over. And I realized I had never had a fresh garlic clove in the interior of my gastrointestinal system before in my life and my body was like maybe there had been a tincture of garlic powder on my mom's chicken but my body was like dude i don't have the enzymes for this you fucked up we're both in for it now and um these but the and these cliches i mean it's like it didn't come from nowhere right like like i had a i had a palate that had been trained to expect that food was bland and underspiced for all kinds of cultural slash historical reasons on the other hand my my wife, who's white and from the very deep south, comes at it from a totally different angle, which is like massively spiced barbecue and super hot food to the point where when we were in Mexico City, we were at this little hole-in-the-wall cafe, and she asked for it very spicy. And they were like, ma'am, we can't, we can't in good conscience do that to you. Like, you, they're going to cart you out of here on a gurney if we do that. And we had to, we had to insist, no, nope. No, my wife is a freak of nature. She can take any level of food heat that you throw at her. And so they literally, they brought out this secret sauce that's like, it's like how the American government counsels, you know, its scientists to handle plutonium. You know, it was like, like this cannot be, you know, this must be only in the right hands at the right moment, you know. And I joke that I think that they must have a picture of her that, you know, up on the wall of that restaurant now. They couldn't believe that she dumped this on her food and ate it without blinking an eye, right? So it's like, these things obviously completely transcend. They have some roots in historical cliches. They make for relatively harmless sort of funny jokes. But Jamal, I am 100% with you and with uh, Jenny, the author of the piece, Jenny Zhang, which is that it just implies in turning white people into an amusing monolith, which we absolutely fucking deserve, right? And, and you know, for having been given every unearned privilege in the fucking book, we ought to know how to laugh at ourselves. That's not the problem. By implication, it turns non-white, which in itself is a dubious term to use for its monolithic powers, right? As if 
all people who aren't designated white somehow have something in common between them in their non-whiteness, which is a total falsity. It turns quote unquote non-white people into a, into a monolithic category and and it it just is primitivizing and insulting in some way i just thought the essay was terrific in tone nuance it really got at it. it it did it very quickly really deft piece of writing in my estimation yeah that's 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 a big reason why i recommend it as well i think it just it was an excellent piece of sort of like both um, uh, explanatory writing, but also sort of argumentative writing, kind of like a model, a model example of how to make an argument in writing. All right. Well, I think that'll do it for our Slat Plus uh, segment this week. Uh, great discussion. And uh, I'd like to say a special thank you, of course, to the Slate Plus members who subscribe. It supports not only our show, but all of the great journalism and podcasting that uh, Slate does across its many, many platforms. So thanks a lot. And we'll see you next week.